When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's December 6, 2021. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Alfonso Bacatiello, former head of a $20 billion investment portfolio and author of the Macro Compass newsletter on Substack. Alfonso, welcome back. Is it old now to say that Alf is back? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, it's not. That's the banner of the day. Alf, Alf, Alfonso and I actually spoke earlier on Real Vision. Some of you may have had a chance to catch up on that. And we took a big picture look at the macro environment and how to position your portfolio as we head into 2022. We had so much to cover. He was kind enough to come back and join us for the daily briefing today, where we're going to pull the time frame in, I think, just a little bit now and talk about maybe navigating these markets right now. So once again, feel free to drop your questions in the chat, and we will get to as many as we can. And it's a great day to be talking about. Today, we saw a big bounce back in U.S. equities, the S&P 500, NASDAQ, Russell, all up between you know, one and a little over 2%, easing a little bit off those highs as we get to the close. The VIX easing back, the 10-year Treasury yield edging up, but still at 143, still pretty flat yield curve. And Bitcoin up, but well off those recent highs. So, Alf, let's start with the picture for U.S. equities. You know, we've been really seeing these swings ever since Powell came out and gave that testimony, indicating they were going to speed up the taper. Um, does the rally today seem sustainable? What's your view as you're looking at stocks? Well, today is one of these days where, you know, the it's all cheerful and it's risk on. Maybe it feeds into the narrative that this time is different, but it's not. So uh, let's talk about the equity market first and get, and get into the business. So if you're an equity investor, I mean, I mean, most of you guys will have stocks in your portfolio. Your total return prospects for the next few years are actually dictated by three things. The dividend yield you bought at the beginning and the earning per share that will be realized or you expect from this uh, stream of cash flows by owning a stock in a company and how much do you pay for this stream of earnings. So that's the price earnings, right? So those are the three most important components. And as dividend yields today is pretty low, they explain not much of the total return of, of stocks, basically. So we can focus on earning per share and price earnings. Uh, this chart that I pulled up from today's edition of the Macro Compass, which is my free newsletter on Substack, is basically showing how uh, the FAMG 12 months forward PE, so the valuations basically 12 months forward, um, they are inverted in this chart and they're depicted in orange and how they correlate very well with the real yields in the US. So the story there is as real yields drop, then valuations of the tech side, the most, let's say, valuation intensive part of the stock market actually go up. So if you invert valuations, you will see a pretty good correlation between valuations and real yields. Now, as this um, relationship has held for long, uh, one has to question the direction of real yields first to get an understanding of where valuations are going. Valuations are obviously, um, you know, something that is relative. If you're an investor, you have the equity market, but also you have the bond market, you have commodities, you have real estate, you have cash as an alternative, right? So you will always be looking for places to, to effectively invest where it's most convenient on a relative basis. 
if your risk-free real interest rate actually goes up from here, then it becomes less punitive for you to allocate some of your money into short-term cash. And it happens to be that my view on real interest rates from here is that they are going to gently go up as the Federal Reserve has pivoted and it's effectively trying to steam down inflationary pressures, move up nominal yields, get out of the zero lower bound. And as they reduce inflationary pressure and the labor market heals, they allow real purchasing power of Americans to go up, which feeds very well into Biden's agenda of getting effectively um, the, House, the House and the Senate again in the, in the midterm November 22 elections. So if you have that sort of scenario, what does it mean for the economy? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the economic forces are, I, I always think you need to split them between structural forces and cyclical forces, right, Maggie? So from a structural perspective, um, basically things haven't changed much. At the end of the day, um, the structural drivers of the economy are the labor supply growth, how productive is this labor supply growth, and how productive is this capital that floats into the economy. And, you know, those are the two main drivers. And the labor supply growth isn't getting anywhere as basically birth rates are dropping and the demographics is something you can't fight about, as I explained in my newsletter today. Um, the productivity of this labor force is also not going anywhere. And you might argue that the economy has gotten an overhang of debt, private and public debt, that also weighs on long-term uh, nominal growth, as also the technological advances weigh on that perspective. On the cyclical side, though, there are sometimes upswings, like the ones we have seen, the animal spirits that we have seen throughout 2021 with mm. vaccination, fiscal stimulus, the credit rush from 2020 feeding into 2021 economic upside. But if I look at that animal spirits, they're definitely fading away. As well indicated my, by my proprietary metric, the credit impulse, that tends to explain and predict very well both asset performances and uh, soft and hard economic indicators, because guys, at the end of the day, credit creation is what matters for the cyclical upswing recovery together with the labor market. Mm. Credit creation has decelerated from the last quarter of 2020 all the way into 2021. That normally doesn't bode well for real economic growth heading into the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, as the private sector does not have a fresh injection of newly created money either from banks, they are not lending, or from the government, which is not injecting on a net basis new stimulus into the private sector. The labor market, on the other hand, is healing slowly but surely, which should provide a little bit of a tailwind to this story. But all in all, the cyclical upswing and the narrative that this is going to be a crack up nominal growth boom is actually fading away. And so are asset classes that are trading uh, according to the secular trends over the last few months and not to the crack-up boom narrative that was prevailing yeah. in 2021. Yeah, and this is, <clears throat> this is so important. And, and let's break down a little less asset classes that do well in the quadrant. But this is an important point that we talked about earlier. When you say you watch credit as new money coming into the economy, and you say the banks aren't lending, the fiscal, the government right now is, is not, or is at least pulling back at the extraordinary measures um, that they took earlier, the support that came earlier in the year. A lot of people get confused and look at the Federal Reserve and say they're super accommodative. Yes, they're tapering, but they're still buying. You say that is not money going into the economy. That's a misunderstood concept. Absolutely, yes. So uh, the creator of money in our monetary system and credit system are commercial banks and the governments. 
So the Federal Reserve can expand their balance sheet to accommodate the process, the Federal Reserve as any other central bank can. We can talk about that accommodation later on, but let's focus back again to the fact that the creator of money in our system are commercial banks and the government. Every time a commercial bank makes a loan, it creates money out of thin air. It does not use reserves, it does not use deposits. That's false. It's empirically proven to be false. Every time a bank makes a loan, the asset side of the bank goes up and the deposit, new deposit as well is created as a result of the loan which is created. This deposit will end up somewhere else in the banking system or in an aggregated system, it will end up at the same bank. But the, 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 the main concept is credit creation happens when a new loan is made or happens when the government decides to inject new resources into the private sector by a net deficits. So it just prints fiscal stimulus does not intend to tax those back, so to, to basically deprive the private sector from those resources later on. So those resources tend to basically be stuck in, in the private sector. Those are the two ways to create money. And in 2020, we have created a lot of money. Not the Fed, not the ECB, not the BOJ, but the governments have done so. And the banks have done so, because as the governments were guaranteeing the credit risk out of loans, then basically banks were lending out almost without credit risk, right? So in mm -hmm. 2020, we have seen an explosion in credit impulse. My metric went through the roof. I've never seen something like that in such a short time. And guess what? A few months later, if you allow a little bit of a lag, all the assets that are on the right side of this compass, so in quadrant two and quadrant three, went through the roof. So basically, you had all the emerging market effects overperforming the, the dollar. You had the dollar tanking, cyclical stocks to the roof, copper, all the industrial commodities you can think of overperforming growth stocks, so the Nasdaq sort of things were actually doing pretty okay, but not as much as the high beta real economy things that actually get a boost out of credit creation mm -hmm. that feeds into earnings, feeds into nominal activity, gets into this animal spirit, and also it's reflected in, in asset allocation. Fast forward to today, this credit creation has decelerated pretty aggressively. Banks are not lending that much on a net basis. The government hasn't uh, released another huge fresh amount of fiscal stimulus into the economy. What matters here is the impulse. So not the direction, but the acceleration or deceleration of this credit creation. The system is created anyway to always increase credit. We increase leverage, we in increase the amount of debt in the system. That's how the system is built. How mm -hmm. quick or how slow do we do that leads to a stronger or a lower impulse. And at the moment we are in the left side of the quadrant where the impulse is actually pretty low. It has been low already since the end of last year, and that's why since May 2021, we find ourselves in the left side of the quadrant and in the upper left side of the quadrant. Yes, the you are here, red dot, right? <laughs> yes, May 2021 to now. So interestingly, May 21, everyone still was screaming that Treasury yields would close the year at 2.5% or 3%, mm -hmm. or Jamie Dimon said it was 4% or whatever he wanted it to be, but ultimately, uh, my credit creation model was already telling me that was not to be the case. Uh, also, the relative monetary policy stance is the other metric we use. So yes, guys, central banks matter. They accommodate this process. They basically are able to uh, switch the asset side of the private sector from uh, an amount of assets to a less, lesser amount of assets and more amount of bank reserves and bank deposits. That's exactly QE. They take the amount of bonds away from the balance sheet of a bank or a pension fund or an asset manager. And now this, this private sector entity finds themselves with less bonds and more reserves. 
if it's a bank or bank deposits if it's an asset manager and a pension fund but mm -hmm. those bank deposits from a pension fund can 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 get into the real economy the only thing they can be allowed to be transformed into is regulatory allowed assets both for bank uh, for banks and for pension funds most of the times that's bonds again so as you can see you get stuck into a financial system and as banks don't lend reserves these reserves have zero correlation with the banks with bank net lending japan is the perfect experience i mean the the, the boj balance sheet went through the roof in the 90s and the amount of bank reserves in the system was increasing 20 30 percent over a span of like five to ten years the amount of bank loans was decreasing by the same amount you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right. We, we've, seen this, we've seen this play out, and, and that is the fear of, of folks like you that have been watching this, that we are in this sort of you know, trend where the U.S. and Europe and the developed world is kind of following the, the, that playbook, or they can't get out of it anyway. We, we have a question from Bo, are the eight, which you've already sort of answered, but, but I'm going to just tack on something to that. Are the 6 to 8% swings in the 10-year Treasury a red flag for this market? I, I guess, you, is the long end reacting to that macro picture that you just pointed out while we see the short-term reacting to, to the change, the sort of unexpected change coming from the Fed? Yeah, so guys, the sort of the master macro trade since summer this year has been a flutter yield curve in the yeah. US, in America, but in the US has been very, very strong. And I pointed that this out in the Macro Compass newsletter already in the summer. When you get the slowing credit impulse that anticipates basically a, a slower economic impulse as well with a bit of a lag, but at the same time, you get the Federal Reserve and other central banks that are keen on getting away from these top accommodation levels. Then you will have the front end of the bond market that actually reprises up. I mean, it has to reprise an hiking cycle and a risk premium that this hiking cycle will be faster or sooner than what they expected before. So front end yields actually tend to go up. But the long end of the bond market works in a completely different way. The long end of the bond market is much more influenced by long term nominal growth perspective. So mm -hmm. that's basically real growth and inflation expectation, and there is a term premium attached to that as well. But if you as a central banker tightening during a slowdown of credit creation and, and economic growth anyway, you are gonna only accelerate the return back to the secular trends that drive the long end uh, of, of the bond market and the yields reflected there. Mm. And you're gonna reduce the uncertainty around what is the future outcome for this very long end bond yields and long-term nominal growth. You're going to reduce this this outcome and you're going to reduce this uncertainty and bring the outcome to one basically central outcome which is long-term nominal growth is going to remain to be poor over the next 20 to 30 years therefore owners of long-term bonds can actually demand less premium to own these bonds and yields can be allowed to drop so the curve the yield curve flattens at that point pretty aggressively which is completely counterintuitive to the narrative that the Fed is behind the curve, inflation is going to run away, right. the bond yields have to be at 10%. The bond market is speaking pretty loud, guys, since the last six months. So and, and, with a flat, 
with a flat yield curve or flattening yield curve, what does that mean for stocks? Can stocks, I mean, we still have people forecasting gains in stocks eat th through the year end and then also into next year. Can the stock market rally when the bond long end of the bond market's telling you that there's suboptimal growth? So there are different sectors in the stock market. So it's, it's hard to make one full assessment, but if I have to try, then, as I was saying before, the valuation side of it, as real interest rates at the, at the short end tend to reprice a little bit up. So nominal yields go up, inflation expectations probably are tamed by the, the tightening in intervention of central banks mm -hmm. and the base effects kicking in anyway. You have these real yields going up. So valuations, it's hard to foresee that they can go to the, to the moon from where we are. Mm -hmm. Then you have the earning per share. So you have the earnings growth, right? And, and then there, the, the consensus forecast for 2022 in the S&P earnings growth is something about 8% year on year. And in 2023, it's something about 10% year on year. So if you think about these numbers, they are still relatively optimistic. I mean, they, they basically foresee a slightly above trend nominal growth for the US economy in 2022 and 2023. Uh, from what I see happening on the credit impulse perspective, I'm not so sure that ultimately we will have such a rosy above trend nominal growth next year. So maybe earnings per share can disappoint a tiny bit. But if you come back to the interaction with the bond market, then in a situation where nominal growth is, you know, okay, but nothing ridiculously good. And for sure, over the long term, you don't have this crack up boom nominal growth narrative playing through then you rather have to go back to the secular trends where you prefer growth stocks over value stocks, you prefer developed market stocks over emerging market stocks. This is the trend we have seen over the last 20 years. It's there for a reason. Mm. And, I don't think it's any, and I don't think anything structural has changed to move the needle there. So if we remain, it sounds like you're saying we remain in quadrant run. Christopher, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Christopher is asking on the site the difference in quadrant run, quadrant run rather, that's, that's hard for me to say today, uh, the difference between EM stocks and EM equities, um, if, you, if there is it. Yeah, I think he's looking at um, emerging markets. So in long, I think it says EM stocks, and then short, it says EM equities. I don't know. Is, that, is it certain ones or high beta? You see on the, um, it's, it looks, sort of looks like it's in both. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm missing something in the question. Sorry, I can't, can't fully that, follow. That's okay. You, Christopher, we'll, we'll pick that up. Uh, we'll pick that up with you afterwards. But um, in, in the meantime, I, I want to I switch to, we're getting a question as well, um, uh, to talk about Bitcoin. We've seen that really pull back. I mean, we're, we're up today, but we're well off the highs. There's been a lot of frustration. I just taught, had Jim Bianco and I were talking yesterday saying, you, you know, it, it's, he's fresh. He was frustrated that it's um, moving in correlation with risk assets when the, the idea was that it was going to be a hedge to risk assets. What do you see happening in the Bitcoin market? And, and why do you suppose that is? Okay. So the reason why I laugh, Maggie, is that uh, Bitcoin is a, an extremely complicated topic. It attracts a huge polarization in the discussion. It's either worth zero, it's useless, it has to go to zero, or it's the ultimate hedge to any risk assets. It's, it's the superior pristine collateral we're going to the Bitcoin standard. So this maximalism, I think it's, it doesn't help the discussion over digital assets, which will be pretty important. I think it, are here to stay over the next decade as they fit into a yeah, digital revolution effectively we are witnessing. And they are probably here to stay, but I, I don't understand why this polarization. The way I tend to look at things is much more uh, 
uh, practical, let me say it like that. Bitcoin is a risk asset. It's actually a high beta risk asset. It's, it should be considered as part of your portfolio that you allocate and that you must expect drawdown and volatility from this asset and you must expect it not to behave when the system gets a shock. And, and I mean a systematic shock. Now, over the last few days, we have seen some shock, which is not that systematic. In February, March 2020, yes, we have seen a proper shock. And we have also witnessed what Bitcoin did back then. But it's not only Bitcoin. I mean, even treasuries couldn't find a, a buyer in the first mm. place. That's because our system is built on leverage. And when things actually go bad, people have to degross their exposure. And if their exposure includes Bitcoin, they will degross Bitcoin too, guys. There is nothing, you know, uh, dreamy uh, about this asset. There might be, there is a probability that this is... Uh, you know, the, the pristine collateral and we go to the Bitcoin standard, but let's be honest, rationally speaking, the probability is relatively small. Is it zero? Nope, it's not zero. So we need to be realistic about an asset and start to treat it in a more, let me say, um, credible and yeah, maybe institutional way, but just look at it as an asset that has drawdowns, has volatility, can be part of your portfolio can serve as a part of your portfolio. Don't expect it to be always green and one way up. Mm. It will have drawdowns. It will bring volatility to your portfolio. Just learn to deal with it and actually allocate uh, a proportion of your wealth that you feel comfortable when the drawdown comes. That's how you should look at Bitcoin as, as, as any other asset, actually. Right. And, and, in, and in your mind, it fits under risk asset. So when you're looking yes. at your portfolio, you have to organize it in such a way that that is what you consider it. Such an interesting conversation. And, you know, the difference between the price action and then the conversation about the underlying technology, I think, is something that's starting to come up more and more. It's interesting. Um, Rao Powell recently spoke with Ian Rogers, the chief experience officer at Ledger, um, and they really f were talking about the the technology and the powerful tech forces that are being unleashed. Let's have a listen to that clip. The, and it comes to crypto. It's more about this digitization of everything. Because yeah. there's another vector here that's really interesting in that I got to see music go from 0% digitized to 99% digitized. And so when I looked at LVMH, I said, huh, okay, what I really am is a student of how is technology changing culture? And one thing that we can say overall is that we're moving from mass to niche, right? We're moving from kind of, you know, nations to tribes. That's another another conversation I think you and I had last time. And, you know, there's and, and so that when you look at LVMH, I'm, I also you know say we're going from from where a world where marketing is hyper efficient to a world where quality is hyper efficient, you know, because word of mouth is so strong and consumer choice is so high. But I think that's where luxury really wins. Because here you have a mass of very valuable niches who are focused on quality. And they're focused on quality and communications, quality of product. They're unapologetic about price. They say, we make the best product. We make it in France. We design it with you know, a lot of care. We spend a lot of money on marketing. We make good content and it costs this. And if you don't want it, don't buy it. And I would argue that is what works. Super interesting. And that full interview is on the crypto tier, which is free to everyone. It's free. You have to sign up with your email um, and you can do that at realvision.com backslash crypto. But then once you do that, it's free. So there are some amazing conversations there. I encourage you to check it out. So, um, so Alf, there, we, I think we feel this, right? We feel all this exciting technology that's being unleashed. We feel things changing. 
Is that helping the economy? I mean, is that feeding into productivity and the kinds of things that can help boost the economy when you're looking at future growth? I mean, the, the technical, technological advances are have actually a dual and interesting effect. I mean, if you, there is always a debate about if you measure productivity in the right way, uh, and ultimately the jury is still out. Uh, definitely during our life, daily life, we can actually feel like um, our productivity has definitely increased as the use of technology um, has, has increased too. The other side of it is obviously that um, technology can and has replaced jobs. And as yeah. that happens, then the labor force shrinks. And if the labor force uh, shrinks, basically the percentage of active population of the overall population becomes lower, then the amount of people contributing actively to real economic growth also shrinks and long-term real growth potential goes down as a result of it. Yeah, that that that's such a good point. And it infuriates me when I listen to politicians and policymakers talk endlessly about jobs, but they never talk about automation and how to grapple with that. It like literally makes me want to pull my hair out because it, it's such an important point. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, we have a great question from Lena on the exchange. Um, industrial commodities are not the place to be. How about the energy sector, which provides a very good yield versus cash? and low valuation? Is it wise to put money into this sector? What is your view of, of commodities as we, as we look at the sort of scenario that you've laid out, Alf? Yeah, it's a good question. So commodities have seen a fantastic performance between uh, basically October 20 and April 2021 uh, during this animal spirits period, um, where effectively nominal growth was repriced up. Um, the result is basically, this is the result of credit impulse going up. That's the blue line in this chart uh, that, I, that we pulled up where we show the credit impulses percentage of GDP and uh, copper against gold returns. So we take copper, which is basically an industrial commodity uh, and gold, which is considered to be a more, much more conservative commodity or a uh, anti-monetary debasement commodity, call it as you wish. Um, so a high beta against a low beta commodity. And then we see that as if credit impulse goes up, then with a the lag of eight months, copper, tends to, copper returns tend to outperform gold returns. And if credit impulse is going down, the opposite happen, happens. So copper underperforms gold mm. on a relative basis. So you give it eight months lag and you can see how this chart works. Fantastic, right? And I can, I can tell you, and if you visit my newsletter on the Macro Compass, you will see many more of these charts where the, the credit impulse anticipates a relative asset performance with a lag between six and 12 months. When it comes to commodities, what, what this chart is telling us is that the outperformance of high beta real economy industrial commodities has been there for a reason. So it's been the result of credit impulse and animal spirits and nominal growth picking up, but this seems to be quite done. So credit impulse would have suggested to basically fade away the overperformance of copper against gold um, quite a while ago, I mean, a few months ago. And actually, if you look at the trend anticipated by the credit impulse, as it has weakened pretty aggressively at some point uh, in Q1 this year, Q2 this year, and it has since then remained relatively shallow. 
this doesn't seem the environment when you want to overweight high beta real economy mm -hmm. industrial commodities. That's the same reason why emerging market FX in many places actually topped as well. If you take Russia, which is the typical energy exporter uh, commodity um, place, basically, and FX, the rubble has performed incredibly well. But, you know, since the last few months, this performance seems to be on, on a relative basis pretty picky. And therefore, I would say um, industrial commodities are, which have benefited as well from some supply bottlenecks that we have had over the last few months, don't seem to me as the most compelling place where, where to put your money at this stage. Does that put uh, emerging emerging market countries, the bond markets of emerging market countries that are commodity reliant, more at risk? Uh, so, Rob's yes. asking that question about you know what you see uh, in terms of bond markets around the world. So uh, we talk a lot about um, the U.S. Uh, another interesting place is Europe nowadays, where if you look at the relative pricing between the ECB and the Federal Reserve you actually find out that ECB is priced to be pretty shallow, only to high rates to 0%, from minus 0.5% to 0% in something like four years from now. That's, that's pretty slow compared to the, to the hiking cycle of the Federal Reserve, but it tends to have basically explained that the Federal Reserve tends to lead other central banks. So the European Central Bank, because it doesn't want to make euro dollar appreciate that much, um, tends to follow in the footsteps of, of the Federal Reserve, but other emerging market central banks have already taken action. So mm. if you look at Hungary, if you look at Poland, if you look at, uh, well, of course, much more emerging markets outside Europe, central banks like Brazil or Russia, they have taken action, they have um, hiked rates. Um, what I would expect there is that the emerging market exporting, commodity exporting countries that have highly benefited from the supply bottlenecks and the credit impulse uh, uptick in, in 2020 and 2021, um, they probably have seen the top of their performance relative to both other emerging markets and developed markets. Mm. We have a question from Christopher. Uh, how are you interpreting the lack of foreign buyers in U.S. Treasuries? Any concern that the Fed will eventually step back up as buyer numero uno? That's Christopher on the exchange. Hey, so... Um, there's always this discussion about who's buying treasuries, uh, which I find pretty interesting. Um, treasuries are um, an asset that represents almost the most, almost the most pristine form of collateral that is out there. If you own treasuries and you want to post this collateral in repo to somebody else, trust me, they will accept it almost at no haircut in most of the times. So you will effectively be able to secure funding overnight in a repurchase agreement transaction, a repo transaction, give your treasuries as collateral, and you know you will be treated fine, trust me. So um, because the, the Federal Reserve is basically, uh, sorry, the US government is sitting on the reserve currency of the world, they have this benefit of having the collateral of the entire euro dollar system, which basically provides dollar to all offshore entities outside the US, that they basically they can only access dollars by uh, uh, well, banks lending or somehow these dollars being recycled through trade balances outside. But in moments of stress, treasuries represent for them the pristine form of collateral that they can post to other counterparties to, to obtain pretty scarce dollar cash that, that they need because everybody lends in dollars, wants to trade in dollars, settles in dollars, but not everybody is able to produce and get their hands on dollars pretty quickly. So it is very, very rare 
that you will see situations in which uh, there is no, um, let's say, appetite for, for treasuries. Uh, there can be temporary moments where other foreign entities can place their money in, in places where on a relative basis it makes sense against treasuries, but on a structural basis, because our system is built on uh, the dollar being the, the reserve currency of the world, and it's built on a euro dollar system that allows foreign institutions to trade and transact and lend in dollars despite they don't have access to dollars, treasuries represent the most pristine form of access to dollars because via repo they can get exchanged for short-term dollars when, when problems occur. So I don't, see, um, I don't see that being a major hurdle for treasuries going forward. Fantastic. That's all we have time for. We didn't even get to talk about the dollar, but we're going to do it next time. Alf, so great to have you back. And you mentioned your newsletter a couple of times. I mean, I know there's there, the charts there and a whole bunch more. Some of them we talked about on our earlier uh, Real Vision interview, which you can watch the replay of um, if you want to get a little bit more in-depth on, on Alf's macro thinking right now. But where can people find you if they want to subscribe to the newsletter? What do they do? Yeah, so uh, they can just go on Google and type the Macro Compass. It's the name of my newsletter. You can also see it as the watermark in several charts. It's a Substack newsletter. It's free. Uh, it's published uh, one or two times a week, depending on the week. And I give away investment ideas and basically macro insights to help you guys navigate the markets. Um, and I hope I can help you with my uh, experience in managing a 20 billion investment portfolio in the past. We're all in this to all all uh, all in this together. So. Let's just try to make the best out of it. Absolutely. And I think more information um, and the kind of experience you bring, Alf, is, is so helpful to us all. And Alf's going to, you're going to be seeing a lot more of Alf on Real Vision, too, which we're excited about. So that's fantastic. But we got to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for watching The Daily Briefing. I'll be back tomorrow with Tony Greer. Uh, the conversation, as always, continues on The Exchange. Take care and good luck out there. See you guys. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com